Father God, I pray for your guidance through this message, and I pray that you will be indeed uplifted and glorified, and that holy is your name, for we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So the title of my message is The Everlasting Gospel and the Glory Thieves. Is, let's just see if we have... Is that working? There we go. Uh, and it comes from Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the what? The everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Now, that's, that's good news. What does the word gospel mean? Good news. So here is good news. It's the everlasting good news. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus has come to rescue you. That's good news, isn't it? And so we take a look at this, and we are sort of surprised when after this good news verse, we're told what the everlasting gospel is. And it begins with this very strange word. What is it? Fear God. Uh, that's not what we'd wanted to begin with. What about Jesus loves you? What about God loves you? But instead it says what? Fear God. And why should we fear God? It tells us later on in the verse, for the hour of his judgment has come. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like good news to me. Fear God, be afraid of God because he is going to judge you. How many of you like to receive a summons to court? When you get it, you go, oh, yippee, good news. Is that how you feel? When your friendly uh, friend in, uh, in Chattanooga or in Collegedale pulls you aside uh, while you're driving and says, I've got a piece of paper for you that is a summons to court that declares how much you're going to pay, how many of you feel like that's good news? No. <laughs> yeah, if you're the one writing the ticket, Josh, maybe that'll be different. <laughs> All right, so this is, this is something that stokes some fear in us. In fact, the word for fear is phobios or phobos in the Greek, which is very much like a word that we use today. Phobia, which stands for a fear. Now, some of us have irrational fears, but most of us have experienced fear at one stage or another. Uh, you know, these kinds of fears that kind of uh, paralyze us, that make us uh, wonder about how we're going to get through a situation. In fact, I can guarantee if you're a parent that your children have had fears at night, that somewhat, something is under their bed. Any parents here? Now, did, were you reading bad stories to them? I know this is the time of Halloween, and it's still happening. Why? Because children naturally have a fear. In fact, it's built in. Fear is something that is built in to all of us, and it's a good thing. Is it a good thing for your children to be afraid of hot things? Yes. Is it a good thing for your children to have at least some fear, I think with some of our children not enough, fear of high things? Yes, because then when they get to the edge, they, they may think twice, depending on their gender, it, it appears. And so we, fears are good things, but when you combine fear with the natural thing that a child has, which is imagination, and you put fear and imagination together, that's when it becomes irrational. Have you discovered that? And so it's like, there is something under there. Can you check again? So we get out the flashlight, we sweep it underneath, and then we leave the room like, okay, it should be okay now. We go back to our room and they come back in. But what if it came in through the window? 
Make sure the window's closed, go back. What if it was already in there while, you, while I went out to come and call you? So imagination plus fear can do some powerful things. But while fear can be a good thing, it obviously can be something that is too focused on the wrong thing. And today I want to suggest to you that fear has two sides to it. A side that fears hurt and a side that is positive, and we're going to be taking a look at that. Now when it comes to fear of judgment, all of us tend to fear judgment, but what do we fear? The judgment of others. We fear what they will think of us. I remember when I was, a, uh, you know, just married, I used to come back to Nicole and say, after my sermon, so how do you think I did? And she would go, does that matter? <laughs> you know, does it, shouldn't it matter what God thinks of how you did? Yeah, but God's not like tangibly here for you to share, you know, and so I'm just asking you. And then she would say, well, you could have done this, or you could have done that. And I said, actually, I didn't want to know. <laughs> So fear, fear can be a fear of other people's approval of their affirmation. So what if there are two sides to fear, and I think there are in the Bible. There is a fear like a quaking being afraid, and then there's a fear which is, I value the opinions of others, and so I am fearful of them. Do you get that? Because I value their opinions. And the problem is, is that this fear that's related to others it gets us into trouble. In fact, the Bible has a word for it. It is the fear of man. Take a look at this text. It says, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. In the Bible, uh, there's parallelism, particularly in Hebrew literature. So you'll say something and then you'll say it again in a different way or in an antithetical way. So this is the opposite. So the fear of man is opposed to what? Trust in the Lord. Fear and trust are just two sides of the same coin. When I fear God, I trust Him. When I fear people, I put my trust in them. Does this make sense? Fear and trust are just two sides. Fear is connected with belief. And when I put my trust in people, the Bible says that that's a snare. What's another word for snare? It has nothing to do with drum sets. Trap. So when I put my trust in people, when I fear what they think of me, then I end up in a trap. But when I trust in the Lord, I shall be safe. Good News Bible says it this way. It's dangerous to be concerned with what others think of you, but if you trust the Lord, you are safe. So you got a choice. Are you going to put your trust in what others think of you? Are you going to fear them, fear of man, or are you going to fear God and put your trust in Him? Do you see the contrast here? So we have to make a choice which way we're going to go, and there are consequences to our choice. I love this book by Edward T. Welch. Uh, it says, when people are big and God is small. All experiences of the fear of man share at least one common feature. What is it? That people are big. They've grown to idolatrous proportions in our lives. They control us. Now, you just think back over how your life has been this last week. If you're a student here, you'll know all about this because who do you fear? Your, your professors and the grade they could potentially give you. So you might even skip your devotions so that you can get a good grade. Anyone ever done that? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands because you'll be afraid of what we think, all right? So they've grown to idolatrous proportions of our life. Maybe it's how your boss thought. Maybe it's how, what your children thought of you. Some parents are so afraid of their kids that they will give their kids anything they want, not because it's the best for them, but they're afraid to disappoint them. 
And God didn't give us our kids to make our kids happy. He gave us our kids so we could help them to become holy. Sorry for children. All right? So it says, since there is no room in our hearts to worship both God and people, whenever people are big, God is not. And therefore, the first task in escaping the snare or the fear of man is to know that God is awesome and glorious and not other people. How many of you can say amen to that? So, so the fear of God is to simply put God in that place where He should be. We will fear things. It's inevitable. The question is, who will you fear the most? Who will you put your trust in the most? Look at Exodus 14 verse 31. They had just come through the Red Sea, and Israel saw the great work that the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people did what? They feared God. Another word for fear is they took Him seriously. They trusted in Him, and because they trusted in Him, they believed the Lord and His servant Moses. And the word belief and trust in the Scriptures are almost the same. So they trusted God because they had seen His great works, and they said, I can fear this kind of God. What it means, they weren't shaking in their boots. They were saying, He is so awesome and so glorious, I don't need to fear the Egyptians. Let me give you an illustration. So when I was about... Uh, 13, there was a bully at school. And this bully, um, every time I went to school, he was just like waiting for me and he would pick on me because he was 14 and I was 13. Uh, so I was just like, what do I do? So eventually, you know, one evening I told my brother. Now, my brother Roland is four years older than me. He's like good at everything. He would work out. He was buff. Um, he was intelligent. He could do any sport. It looked like he could do anything. And I really admired, I feared him. And uh, well, I feared him for other reasons because he would sometimes, if I teased him too much, he would grab a hold of me and put me up against a tree and throw things at me. But, but otherwise, he was very good. <laughs> Actually, once when I was a kid, uh, I was about, uh, I don't know, about six years old. My brothers, I had three older brothers. Uh, I had been teasing them, and they decided to teach me a lesson. So they took my uh, bathroom robe, and they took that cord, and they put the bathroom robe on me, and they tied the cord around my my sleeves so that I couldn't move my arms and then they picked me up by the back and they put me on the back of a door and they hung me there yes but I feared them and uh, by this stage however my brother had matured and had become a much nicer fellow so I told him about the situation and then I went back uh, to school and there was the bully and I was just like oh no and he followed me home and he was taunting me all the way home and uh, he's like, where do you live? I'm going to come and I'm going to mess with you there. And he's just following me and I'm, I'm going red and I'm trying to back away and, and try to say things to him. And then as we, as we get right up close to my home, he suddenly stops. And I don't know why he stopped until I turn around and I see my brother Roland standing there. And I could sort of see his muscles bulging and uh, just and he's scowling at this guy. And this guy just goes quiet because my brother's 17 and this guy's 14 and he's like, well, in my mind, twice the size of this other guy. And the bully suddenly looks small. Now, let me ask you a question. In that moment, did I fear the bully? No. In fact, I said, like, you come on. Yeah. No, I'm not, not quite, but that's how I felt. You know? And there's my brother standing behind me because I feared my brother more than I feared that thing. Are you getting the, the idea here? So when we fear God, we cease to fear other people. When God is awesome and glorious, we trust Him. We don't fear the Egyptians. We don't fear other people because God is so big. God is so glorious. 
So this is part of what fear means. Now it says not only are we to fear God, it says we are to do what? Give glory to Him. We are not only to fear Him, but to give glory to Him because you see, because we fear God, He is glorious. Now, not everybody was able to give glory to God. I want you to take a look at a couple of situations from Jesus' life. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? See, a lot of us are seeking glory, but we're seeking glory for ourselves. We're seeking to add to our glory. We're seeking to make ourselves feel glorious. You know, glory is a good thing. Uh, when you, have you ever listened to music and it's been glorious? Or have you ever gone out and you've seen a sunset and it's been glorious? Have you had that experience? So glory is a good thing. We are hardwired, as we shall see in a moment, for glory. We love glorious things. But we also love our own glory. Uh, I still remember as a teenager, I finally started doing well in school. And I went around and I started asking other people what their grades were. And I had a book where I wrote down their names with their grades. And I was like, oh, you got a C grade. I got a 95, <laughs> and I was, it was terrible, but I, what was I trying to do? I was trying to seek my own glory. I had put myself above others. I was seeking to see how I could be better than them, and I want to suggest that in our lives, we do that a lot, don't we? We seek our own glory, and that this is the modern age that we live in. Uh, so here's Paul David Tripp. He says, human beings are hardwired for glory because they were hardwired for God. God is the only truly glorious thing. So when God created the world, he dyed it with his glory. He made everything in the created world somewhat glorious. The created world really is glorious because God made it that way. Now notice what he says. But the created world cannot be in the possession of what? Ultimate glory. The kind of glory that can satisfy your heart. The glory of this created world is simply, what is that key word? Sign glory that points us to the only glory that will ever give rest and peace in our hearts. So when you see a beautiful uh, sunset, it reminds you that God is even more beautiful and glorious. When you hear glorious music, it reminds you that God is, has a glory that can fill and satisfy your hearts. So the kind of satisfaction you get from the created glory is simply meant to remind you of the creator. Does that make sense to everyone? And that's exactly what the issue is. There could be no bigger issue than this, than what glory will rule your heart. Sinful human beings will ask of the sign what it will never be able to give. And that created thing with all of its glory will not be their savior. Uh, for some people, it's food. They go to a, an ice cream, I shouldn't be doing this right before lunch, and they take that ice cream and they begin to lick that ice cream and it is glorious. But you know what happens? The glory fades. The ice cream gets eaten, and pretty soon you're hungry for another ice cream. But you know, deep down in your heart, that all those ice creams in the world will never fully satisfy you. Isn't that true? You'll eat as many ice creams as you can eat, and you'll not be satisfied. I mean, how many chocolate pieces do you need to be satisfied? And it will never be enough. It will never be enough, because these were simply meant to be signs to point you to something that would truly satisfy. No, instead, these things that you go to for glory will prove to be a cruel and inglorious master that takes much but gives very little of what they were really seeking. And isn't that at the root of all addiction? 
that addiction is basically trying to find glory in the created thing. And today, we look for our own glory. I mean, isn't this the, the generation? Oh, sorry. sorry. You know, and then, uh, wait, I've got to get that background. I'm having such a glorious time at this party. Of course, they're all over there, and I'm over here alone. But I'm having this wonderful time, you know, and smiling because it's about me. But medium cannot replace the kingdom. God created you for the kingdom, not for your own little personal glory. So what God wants for you is so much more than what this world can offer. So this world offers you and say, imagine when you get the certificate, you will be so important. They may give you even uh, some letters after your name. Woo! And then God says, but I want to give you something so much more. I was uh, a new Christian, and I was on the chess team, and I was a pretty good player, and they, uh, they were forming the team, and I discovered that if I played on the chess team, I was going to not be able to go and do an evangelistic series, my first ever evangelistic series at the age of 16. And I had to make a choice. Do I join the, the A team and, be able to, and, and skip the evangelistic series, or do I join the B team and be able to do the evangelistic series. So I chose the B team, and I remember end of the year, our, our A team won uh, the top award, so did the B team, but in the B league. <laughs> and so in the, uh, the, the headmaster was giving out the awards. He actually called me in, and he said to me, uh, you know, I just want to ask you a question. Why did you choose not to be on the A team? And I said, because, sir, I wanted to go and preach the gospel. And he said, do you realize that all the other team members are going to have their names up on this board? It'll be there forever. It'll be the names on the board, and your name won't be there because we only give honors to the winning team. And I said, sir, my name won't be on that board, but it'll be on a different board. What will really give you glory? Where is your glory found? In medium or in the kingdom? You see, there's a whole bunch of glory thieves. It could be food, it could be social media, it could be reputation, it could be music, it could be just the way something makes you feel, it could be a relationship. And the nature of this glory thief is to steal the glory from God and to pretend to give it to you. But it will never satisfy you because all of those things coming that you're, you're stealing from God's glory and adding to your glory will in the end fail and they will never satisfy. How many of you can attest to that? And these glory thieves are what this, this first angel's message of the last days is all about. Fear God and give glory to who? To Him. Because a time is coming when a judgment will come and what is really valuable will be shown. Who is really valuable will be shown. And the things that are not valuable will simply pass away. That's why Jude, just one chapter, the last verse says, To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be what? Say it again with me. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. The whole point of the Bible from Genesis through to Revelation is this. God deserves the glory. The whole point of the Bible is not just the salvation of man. It's how ultimately God is glorified. And the only way we can ever achieve satisfaction and our true worth and our true purpose is when we give God the glory. That's why we need to stop worrying about our careers and start worrying about our calling. Stop worrying about the kinds of degrees we have and start 
worrying about the kind of dedication we have because God has called us to give Him glory. Some today are not willing to go and do a mission trip because it's not safe. Let me ask you the question, did God call you to be comfortable or to be committed? Give God the glory. Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him. Who's the focus of this verse? God is. It's His glory. It's His fear, His judgment, His worship. This is not about us. This is about Him. And the last message that goes to the world is a message that says, God alone deserves the glory. Now it says that we are to worship Him. Worship simply comes from the word worship. It means who is worthy. Why is God worthy in this verse? He made heaven and earth. He is the creator. And here's why when we worship the created thing, it leads to addiction. Paul David Tripp again. The problem is that the created thing you're looking to has no capacity to satisfy your heart. It wasn't designed to do it. Looking to creation to get what only the creator can give you always results in addiction of some kind. Isn't that true? When you look to that thing and you need more of it and more of it just to feel normal, but it's because it was never designed to satisfy. And so it says we are to worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now, where's that a quote from? Fourth commandment, right? It's a quote from the fourth commandment, and it's a quote that helps us, it, it reminds us to worship the creator uh, found there right in the fourth commandment that we remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, for in six days he made the heavens and the earth, right? But interestingly enough, that's not the only place where we find that quote. It's also found in a situation that occurred when Paul and Barnabas had raised a, a crippled man and, and healed him, and then the people wanted to worship them as gods. You remember that story? And right there, it says in uh, Acts chapter 14, uh, that they said to the people around them, we've come to preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. So is, doesn't that sound like the same thing we just read? So now I want to contrast to fear God means to turn from the things that are of no value. In the book of Revelation, we don't have time to go through all the texts, but in the book of Revelation, it has several places where it identifies the problem of idolatry. Idolatry is when you worship something in the place of God. Now I want to take that a step further. What are idols in our life? Idols in our life is anything that we turn to for satisfaction or comfort in the place of God. So in the mornings, what's the first thing you turn to? I know, it's supposed to be your Bible. I'm asking what you actually turn to. All right? It's often our phone, isn't it? And we look at the phone, and that's the place where we turn to for satisfaction first thing in the morning. I wonder how many likes I got last night. Ooh. <laughs> right. No, you don't do that in the morning. Um, so you have this situation where you turn there when you're feeling sad, when you're feeling depressed, who do you go to? That's your idol. And so here it says... You've got to turn from these useless things. They were worshiping Paul and Barnabas as gods. And he says, you don't need to worship God, small g. You need to worship who? The living God. 
He's the creator. He's the one who designed this. And the whole call of Revelation is a call back to the creator God. Eight times in Revelation 13 and 14, it tells us to worship God. He is the one worthy of worship. And if we reorient our lives around the worship of God, around the fear of God and the glory of God, we will discover that satisfaction we've been looking for, and we will not have to fear the judgment. A story is told of a, a group of people in a movie theater, and out came a... Uh, do they call them theaters here? Yeah, I, between Africa and here, I never know what we call these things. And out came an announcement, and it said, ladies and gentlemen, the, a man has just broken in to the movie theater, and uh, he has a gun, and he's looking for the man who is with his wife. And 17 couples got up and fled the movie theater. <laughs> now, unfortunately... Uh, that does tend to describe that our world has not taken God seriously. The reason why there is a judgment is to remind us of what really matters. And the Bible tells us things do matter to God. We have to take Him seriously. We can't just live for ourselves. We have to live for the Creator. And, and in this day and age, people are doing what they want when they want it. Isn't that true? And this is a time when God says, it's time for you to understand who I am. It's time for you to fear me, to fear God, and to give me glory. Because in this moment, in this time of when, when judgment is coming, and the word for, for judgment here is really judging, the hour of his judging has come, and we believe that that process has already begun, that the hour of judging has already begun. It, it, it literally says crisis in the Greek. It is the hour of crisis. It is the hour in which God's judgment is coming upon us. And are we going to take God seriously or not. And you might say, I still don't see how this is connected with the gospel. How can this be good news? And so I want to pull two elements together. Uh, number one, when Jesus preached the gospel, he also preached a time of judgment. Now just take a look at this. In Mark 1 verse 15, it says, the time is fulfilled. What time was that? Prophetic time. The time when the kingdom of God is at hand. And notice what he says. He says then, repent and believe in the gospel, the good news. So Jesus says, I've come and it's a time of judgment. The kingdom of God is coming upon you. And this is a time for you to repent. That literally means a U-turn. Do a U-turn. Stop paying attention to worthless things. Worship the living God and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel and the judgment are connected. So here it is, two things, an announcement, the kingdom of God is at hand, and a command, repent and believe the gospel. Well, when you go to over cross to Revelation, you find that the same things occur just in the reverse order. Sorry, let me go back there. The command is, fear God and give glory to Him. That's the command. And the announcement is why? Because the hour of His judgment has come. Both of these are part of the everlasting gospel. God is saying, these are serious times. Please take me seriously. And this is exactly what we find throughout Scripture. Deuteronomy 8 verse 6 says, So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in His ways and by doing what? Fearing Him. And then it says something surprising, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. So I just... I, I want to show you that fear now leads to the gospel. And how does it work? 
When we fear God, we are prepared to accept His blessings. When we fear God, we are ready to go into the promised land. In fact, in that same chapter, it says that those who haven't taken fearing God seriously are the ones who will forget God and His faithfulness. So God knows in order to prepare us for heaven, He has to teach us how to fear Him now. And as we fear Him, we delight to walk in His ways. It's a good thing. How many of you fear policemen? You're not raising your hands? <laughs> How many of you fear policemen? You know one of the reasons why we fear policemen? Because we're breaking the law. But when I'm not breaking the law, when I'm underneath, I'm not saying all of you, I'm just, when I'm underneath, uh, when, I, when I'm not breaking the law and I'm traveling underneath the speed limit and I see the policemen, I actually wave at them. <laughs> you know, because I'm, I'm not breaking the law. See, when I when I, when I have a fear of the policeman that is like, I want to be in harmony with what this policeman wants, I don't fear his judgment. Does that make sense? So fear actually leads to freedom when you fear the right thing. But when you don't fear the right thing, fear leads to slavery. When I fear the devil, when I fear punishment, I can often fear the wrong thing. Now look at this. Contradiction, Exodus 20, verse 20. Do not fear. This is uh, during the time when the Ten Commandments were given. And what is the, the message? Do not fear. For God has come to test you. This is His time of judgment. Why? That the fear of Him may be before you that you may not sin. Now, isn't this a little strange? Do not fear so that you can fear. What does that mean? It means don't be afraid of these signs of glory. Instead, God is using this to bring you to a fear of God so that you don't sin and so that you are free and so that you are following God and your fear of Him actually leads to freedom. And that's why 1 John 4 verse 18 says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love does what? Casts out fear. And by this fear, we mean the negative fear. Within the context, it's the judgment. For fear has to do with what? Punishment, but whoever fears has not been perfected in love. See, fear is the beginning of wisdom, and love is the perfection of wisdom. And so what happens is, as we learn to fear God, we eventually lose our fear of punishment and of the judgment because we are inside of God. Uh, it's a little bit like I'll see as Lewis try to describe it in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I'm not recommending all of these books. I'm just suggesting that, that this concept that he grappled with is found when the children are on their way. Lucy, I think, is on the way to meet Aslan. And as she's asking questions about who Aslan is, she thinks it's a man, she discovers it's a lion. And she says, oh, I didn't want to go and see a lion because, uh, you know, I'm not sure about meeting a lion. Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not, he isn't safe, but he's good. See, God is not safe. You don't package God into a nice little package who is the ruler of the universe, the majestic, glorious one who rules over everything. You don't package him up into a nice little package, put him on a box of Big Buddy up in the sky. God isn't safe. He is awesome and glorious, but he's good. And when you put yourself in His hands, you do not fear the judgment. Sorry, one back. Um, somehow we went ahead. Okay, just hold on. 
The remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear what? Nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. When God is awesome and glorious, other things are small. When we fear God, we don't need to fear the judgment. And uh, that's, I, I told you last time about a Collegedale cop pulling me over. I went to the courthouse and uh, there was a young man there who tried to explain to the judge why he needed to uh, go and call the, the policeman or else he would be, uh, you know, he couldn't effectively judge him. And the judge was upset, if you know the judge in Collegedale. Uh, he was really upset with this, like, fine, go get the policeman. And the policeman comes back and he makes that guy wait for two hours. And uh, let me tell you, that judgment wasn't good. But I got to go in front of the judge where he said, you guys have had a good experience. You haven't had any other speeding fines except for this one. So I'm going to let you go free. Now, let me ask you a question. Was that judge good news for me? Yes. Was he bad news for that young man? Yes. What made the difference? I feared the judge, and that young man did not. Now, it would help if I even knew the judge. Like, that's my friend. Go stand there. I already know him. He loves me. He has care for me. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't want me to live by the law. My fear for him is now, I don't want to disappoint him. You see the difference? The fear is, I want to, I want to give him the best that I can offer. And that kind of fear, he smiles at me and he says, by the way, I already paid the fine. You're free to go. How many of you want to serve a God like that? Amen? Fear of God means the judgment is good news. Because in the judgment, God takes care of wickedness and evil and he is able to eliminate it from the universe. That's why this is good news that goes out to the world. And the judgment is done within light of who Jesus is. Now, Jesus, when he wrote down on the ground in front of a woman who was being judged, he judged not the woman, likely, but who? The others who were standing around. We don't know exactly what he wrote, but what if he wrote the sins of the Pharisees, March 23, AD 29? <laughs> and they knew what it meant, <laughs> okay? except they wouldn't have had AD back then. And, it, and he turns to the woman at the end and he says, neither do I condemn you, go from now and sin no more. And I want to suggest that that is what God is doing with us today. He is giving us an opportunity to let him be our advocate. Don't be your own lawyer. Don't try and defend your own case. You'll be terrible at it. Instead, go to the only advocate who counts. And because of the price he paid on Calvary, because he sought his father's glory, because he was willing to, to pay in blood to rescue you, you don't have to fear the judgment. You simply have to fear God. And as you do that, you can put away those glory thieves, put away those idols, and let Jesus step into your life and give you the grace and the power that you need to walk in freedom. God bless you.